How many of you know the story of the Salem witch trials? Yeah, at least you know what I'm talking about. You probably haven't spent all your life studying it, neither have I. During a, a short period of time, around 1692, in Salem, Massachusetts, it was not exclusively in Salem, but, but most of it, at least the, the dominant part of this happened in, in Salem, 19 individuals were publicly executed for involvement in witchcraft. Four of those men, believe it or not, yeah, so there are a lot, there are a lot of uh, myths about that. Do you know how they were all killed? Do you know the, the means? You're, you're thinking burned at the stake, right? Drowned? Nope. Nope. They were hung. With one exception, a guy that was, do you know Carl? I bet you know. Pressed. He was pressed to death, which was not a good way to die either. But none of them were actually burned at the stake. Not that that helped them out a whole lot um, per se. But anyway, um, it, it all came about because these girls seeking attention, these, these sort of mischief maker young teen girls with nothing better to do started sort of sort of fantasizing about uh, about having visions and trances which I guess later they they, they admitted was just kind of mischief mischief making but they were talking about people in their village and saying, oh yeah I saw in this vision this this uh, this woman and she looked like a bat and she was flying over the godly people or whatever you know they had these these really wild stories and on their testimony alone which was admittedly only through some vision that they would have had, which they didn't. Um, these people were tried and convicted and executed. I think another myth that goes along with it, though, is the way our society tells the story today. We have this idea that, that they did this without any remorse and, uh, and that they didn't ever really look back at it with any shame. But the truth of the matter was, shortly after the trials and after these executions, the Puritans involved in that started looking at it and going, this was wrong. This was, what we did was desperately wrong. We didn't do it on the basis of two or three witnesses. Um, the judge in the trial, a Samuel Sewell that oversaw the trial, ended up, like, I think, writing a book. At least he went out very publicly and said, I, this was wrong. What, what we did was wrong. This, I believe it was Massachusetts itself that paid restitution to the families of the victims, You'll be happy to know that those that were excommunicated by the church were brought back in on paper. They were dead, but I mean, you know, they, they at least uh, on paper said, hey, you're, you're part of us after all. It's a good thing, right? <laughs> too little, too late? Maybe, too, maybe just a bit, but the point is they realized in this horrific crime that, that really they had engaged in that, that they had misjudged the correct judgment. They had missed rendering the right verdict. We're looking today, of course, at, at, uh, at the book of Acts, and uh, you've paid attention, I assume, and you know that we're dealing with Stephen. Um, Stephen was one of the first deacons. You may remember that. Well, we, we call them deacons. He was a proto-deacon. He was, he was part of a template of people who became deacons. There were seven of those chosen, and at first they were supposed to just wait on tables, and then remember that it says that there were signs and wonders done through Stephen, and then we find out that he was a, a very powerful and persuasive debater, that, he, that the Holy Spirit gave him a particular wisdom, and when it was unmatched, when they would t try to debate him there in the temple square, wherever they were at, he would always win, to the extent that they uh, eventually arrested him and brought him before a tribunal. 
their intention, and we can say they succeeded at, succeeded at it, was to bring judgment, to hold a trial, and to judge Stephen. But if you look at the language of how Stephen responds, Stephen is judging them. He's bringing them to judgment. He's bringing an indictment against them. And in fact, what we'll, what we'll see in this vision that, that Stephen has is that Jesus is right there standing judge over all of this as well. So here's the big idea today, which I think is critical. Don't misjudge God's judgment. Samuel Sewell misjudged God's judgment on 19 innocent people. Saul, who became Paul, and the rest of the Jewish leaders there misjudged God's judgment. And I would say to you that I believe that as Christians we can misunderstand the judgment of God and that that can, can have a, 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 a severe influence, a, a severely negative influence in how we live our Christian life. And, of course, unbelievers, um, at the cost of their soul, misjudge the judgment uh, of God. So let's look at this. What we're going to do first is where you may notice there's this big blank at the beginning of, of the, the sermon. We're going to tell the story. We're going to look at the story. And then we're going to make three applications, three understandings that we should come away with. So if you're with me there, verses 51 through 53 are Stephen's judgments. We'll call this an indictment. Uh, against his accusers, the Jewish leaders. Remember, he's in their courtroom. He's the one who stands accused, but he's, he spent all those verses from 2 through 49 surveying the whole history of God's people, and within that, rather than respond to the criticisms or, or, the, verdict, or the indictment against him, he's actually building an indictment against them. But the words of the indictment, the actual indictment itself, if you will, putting it into kind of a legal framework, are here in verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And remember, he's, he's just spilt, spent a bunch of time rehearsing all of the ways in which those people had been stiff-necked. In fact, Stiff-necked is a word that you come across a fair number of times when you read through the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed that? How many have heard the term stiff-necked before and you think you probably know what it means? You probably do, actually. It's not that hard a word to really understand. Um, Proverbs 29.1 gives us a, a, a pretty good way of defining it. And all you have to do is just ferret it out. And I think you can come up with your own good definition here. It says, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Now, what does that tell you about what it means to be stiff-necked? To be reproved is, is to be corrected when, you, when your behavior, your attitude, your thinking, your words are wrong, correct? It's somebody coming along going, you're in the wrong, you need to change your direction, you're being reproved. But a stiff-necked person is the person who cannot receive reproof. It's a person who will keep going the exact same way they're going, no matter how much you, 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 know, you bring to it, how often you, you speak to them about it. It's, it's, think about a horse, which, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on horses. Some of you know horses. Uh, and I understand that, that generally we put a bit in their mouth, and that's what sort of forces them to turn their head, that and good training. But can you imagine getting on a horse that, that you're not familiar with, that's never been trained, and you're just going to jump on their back bareback and try to get them to go the way you want them to go 
You're just going to reach down there and what? Twist their neck and, all right, I want you to go this way. I want you. If, that, if that horse wants to stiffen its neck, you're just in trouble. That's just the, the end of the story. That's a, that's a very large, stiff neck if you're trying to. And, and that's kind of the picture I get. The uncircumcised heart and ear thing refers to just sort of a calloused resistance to God's word. Calloused unwillingness to hear and be led by God's word. Look what Jeremiah says. He says, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? So God is trying to warn his people through the prophet. And Jeremiah says, you know, I'm speaking, but nobody is hearing. To whom will I speak, give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. So they're completely unable from a spiritual standpoint the words are hitting their eardrums it's not that that that's not taking place but the ability for their heart to hear and be compliant to God is completely missing it all adds up to the same thing and that is that they are resistant to the Holy Spirit that that goes back to that history verses 2 through 49 they've been resistant from the beginning their prophets have come and spoken the word of God to them through the Holy Spirit and yet what have they done in response to those prophets they've killed them they, they've shot the messenger just as this is a spoiler alert if you hadn't been paying attention but that's what they're going to do to Stephen as well is they keep shooting the messenger they murdered the prophets sent to proclaim the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Class? It's Sunday school. It's 101. Jesus, thank you. That's, that is the correct answer to all questions in, in Sunday school. Jesus. He is the righteous one, and they murdered the prophets that proclaimed him. In a nutshell, they are stubborn, spirit-resistant murderers of the righteous, and they cap it off by murdering God's son. And then Stephen just plunges the dagger in deeply in verse 53. You who received... Now remember, they, what, what was it they had said about him? That he'd spoken against the law. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. They're, they're going to put him to death for speaking against the law. And he's like, you got the law and you've done nothing, you've done nothing with it. You've not... Not, um, not followed and obeyed the law. The exploding sound you hear in the background, that's their heads exploding with, with fury. They are, it says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Well, I mean, after all, Stephen was being a little judgmental, don't you think? How many feel like, you know, this Stephen guy, I mean, he's just no prisoners. You find him a little judgy, a little judgy pointing out all their flaws and their mistakes. I mean, a lot of people today who, who have not actually tried to understand the Scripture, I, I think most people that make an attempt will get the nuance. But some people will just say, well, it says don't judge. Don't judge. And they take that to mean don't speak the truth. And if, and if speaking the truth is judgment, then, oh, yeah, Absolutely, Stephen is, is, he's judging, he's speaking the truth, which is what the Old Testament prophets did, which is what got them killed. He's holding up a mirror to them and showing them who they are, which is actually an act of kindness. 
This is kindness when you speak the truth to a person in love, when you, when you seek to turn a sinner from his ways by pointing out his sin. That's not being judging. That's loving. I'm, I'm here to tell you today, and I haven't checked the facts on this, but I'm, I'm reasonably certain that every single one of these people who were engaged in this proceeding, I believe they're all dead. I do believe they are all dead. Again, didn't check my facts on this. I'm just going way out on a limb to say they all died. Because why? Because all men die. And, and, and Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes judgment. What, what Stephen is doing, and he, he rightly understands, he rightly judges the judgment of God, and so he speaks the truth. And their response to the indictment is to hate the prosecutor. He has whipped them bad in the debates. He just kept making them look like fools. And then they bring him in there and they have the whole council surrounding and intimidating him. And even in that, in his defense, he just completely demolishes them. And yet they are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and of ear. And all of his words, his good words are just glancing off of their hearts like, like they were made of iron. Okay, then in verse 55 and 56, they're all, 55 and 56 are kind of repetitious. I don't know if you noticed this or not. Because in 55, we find out what it was Stephen saw in his vision. But then in verse 56, he explains what he sees in his vision. So they're almost identical with just, just some minor wording, and you can understand why the wording would be changed, as it were, in terms of his audience. But it says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, and here he goes, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, so he doesn't say Jesus, he says Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Do you notice a lot of similarities between what's happening with Stephen and, the, and also with the trial that Jesus went through? Do you remember the moment when the high priest looked at Jesus and said, Oh, come on, buddy. Just level with us. Tell us straightforward. Are, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And he says, Yes, and you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds you know, with, with glory. And, uh, and that's when they freak out. In a very similar inflection point, Stephen looks up and sees Jesus at the right hand of God. standing. At, isn't it interesting that he's standing? Have you ever noticed that before, that he's standing? When we talk about Jesus at the right hand of God, what is his normal posture when, we fra when, when you hear using that term? Seated, right? Seated, and, that, and that's how it's often phrased. Why is he standing? And you'll hear different people offer different ideas. There's probably a half dozen solutions that people have come up with as to why Jesus is standing in this vision. And I, I happen to agree with, with a very smart guy in a very smart commentary, a man by the name of Daryl Bach, um, New Testament scholar. And I think, I, th I agree with him when he says that there's an element of judgment in that, that here this, here's this courtroom happening before him Stephen's on trial they're trying to judge Stephen but in a sense what we're seeing is Jesus standing above that 
And the real judgment, the judgment that matters, is happening in the court of heaven. And those people are, are, are coming under God's judgment and indictment. The other thing, the other aspect of that that can't hardly be missed is that Jesus is standing because of what Stephen is doing in his name. In other words, as Jesus has said, you know, when we profess him before men, he will do what? Profess us before his father. Do you remember that, that scene in, in Chariots of Fire? How many have seen Chariots of Fire? Yeah, it's, man, if you haven't, now's the time. Um, yeah, it, it's about Eric Little, who was a famous, famous Scottish runner. He ended up becoming a missionary and, and died um, during World War II in a, in a prison camp. But um, Eric Little uh, went to the Olympics. I don't remember which one it was, but uh, he was at the Olympics, and he wouldn't run in the race that he had qualified for because it was being held on Sunday, and he had very strong convictions about, he was a Sabbatarian, as you call it, very strict observance of the Sabbath, and you shouldn't run, shouldn't compete on Sunday according to what he'd been taught and what he believed. So he refused. They ended up putting him in a different race, one that wasn't really his comfortable race, if you will. And in the movie, the way it's depicted, one of the American runners comes over and hands him a piece of paper. Do you remember that moment? Totally fictitious. Didn't happen. But, still a beautiful moment in the film. He comes over, he gives him a piece of paper, and essentially it quotes 1 Samuel 2.30, the part where it says, those who honor me, I will honor. And so, not only... Do I believe that Jesus is standing as judge over those proceedings and the ultimate judgment belongs to him? But I believe that as Stephen is honoring Jesus, that Jesus is seen standing, honoring him and ready to receive him. Because they've rejected Christ, what are they here? Blasphemy. I heard it say blasphemy. They, they are so intent on keeping their, their ears shut it says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They've got their hands literally like over their ears or their fingers in their ears, and, and they rushed at him. That's a tragic irony if I ever saw one. How do they miss this? I mean, Stephen has, has outlined how again and again and again their forefathers had killed the prophets, and they killed the righteous one. And yet they're, he, he's, he's laid it out. You're calloused of, of, of ear and heart. You're stiff-necked. And they're like, oh, yeah, we are. Well, look what we're going to do. We're just going to go ahead and kill you then. It's ironic. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here, here's something interesting. When it came to how they carried out this sentence, they did it perfectly. This was the perfect, appropriate sentence for the crime that they found him guilty of. If you look at the book of Leviticus, and you see what they're to do with a blasphemer, this is, I mean, they nailed it. They got this just the way, you know, I mean, they were just wrong on their verdict. But other than that, I mean, they nailed it completely. It was like the Salem witch trial. You know, you said, oh, I thought they burned them at the stake. No, that was the continental um, punishment for witches. But in, in England and in the English colonies, you were to hang them. So, I mean, they get this. They, they, they do this perfectly, except they, they've got the guy, an innocent man. That's the only thing they got wrong. 
They, they, they're straining out a gnat, they're swallowing a camel. They're 100% righteous seen from one viewpoint, and they're, and they're completely unjust on the other. And Saul is there who would later become Paul. And, and, and you get the, the idea that this doesn't bother him. I mean, I can't put myself back in the psychology of, of Paul at that time. And uh, some people do think that it ate away at him over time. But honestly, he's standing there. And I think he's looking at this going, you know, kind of the Barney Five thing. Yeah, nip it in the bud. You got to nip it in the bud. And he's thinking, you know what? When I get done here holding the coats, I think I'm going to go, you know, go pursue and persecute the church myself while I'm at it. Apparently, uh, stoning people is kind of like playing golf. Have you ever tried to play golf in a big parka? Anyone ever try that? Jeff, you're a golfer. Did you, did you ever try to swing the golf club? Well, why wouldn't you? Why would we not swing the golf club with a... Because you don't really have good movement with your arms. So they all take off their parkas. I don't think they had parkas, but their outer garments. And they dump them at, uh, at Saul's feet so that they can really get a good, good swing in there. By the way, do you notice what Luke has done here again? We've pointed this out, and I, I'll just keep pointing it out to you. But Luke has this habit, and I love it. I think it's good storytelling, where he will... Um, mention someone for about a paragraph or a, or a verse and then pick up with that person later on and he does that with Paul all right then comes Stephen's death and with it the end of this account in chapter 7 I can't tell you how long it takes does anybody know how long it takes to stone someone it's kind of a ridiculous question right how I mean it, it just long enough, Carl said. And Carl, I talked to Carl because Carl's a history teacher, and he was telling me about stoning. Um, in the Muslim world, of course, they still practice all kinds of things like this, including stoning. And apparently, I did not know this, but apparently in Saudi Arabia, if you're found guilty of something for which you need to be stoned, they bury you up to what? About the chest level, shoulder level, somewhere up in there. And then Carl was telling me, they're really, really specific about the size stone you grab. You're not allowed to grab a big old nice bowling ball size rock. And you think, well, that's kind of them not to let you. No, 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 that's not why. They want you to grab something about the size of an egg or, or so. Because what the, what the, they want to kill you. They just want it to take long. They want you to feel it. And in this case, obviously this was, this was happening in a different culture, different time. In this case, Stephen is standing there. And I don't know how long he was able to endure it while he was standing there. But the indication is, is that he is standing under the blows as he's being pelted, as, as these stones are hitting him and producing gashes and bleeding and all of the rest. He stands there as absolutely long as he is able. And while he is standing, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the stoning continues to the point that eventually, and, and you've seen this in, if you watch MMA or prize fights or stuff like that, not, not my cup of tea, but you know, if a guy gets hit in the head enough times, eventually what happens? His knees go wobbly, don't they? And eventually they collapse, and, and that's what happens with Stephen. He collapses, and his knees hit the ground, and the last thing he does before he dies is that he cries out with a loud voice. Does this sound familiar? With a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen knew their guilt. Think about that. If you talk about the judgment of God 
and the judgment of a court. Stephen knew they were guilty, and Stephen knew that Stephen was innocent. But he was so full of the Holy Spirit, I believe that in that, I believe it was a genuine cry to God that God would forgive them. Can you imagine that? They're literally killing him. People who have been trying to take him out for so long, and he sees the faces of men that he debated and beaten time and time again, and, and yet in his last breath, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Death for the Christian in the New Testament is almost always, I can't say that 100%, but, but most of the time, from my observation, it's phrased this way, fell asleep. Now, does that teach soul sleep that, that some people proclaim where the idea is you die, you just, you're in the grave, and, and then uh, eventually when Christ comes, you're resurrected at that moment and you suddenly become aware again? I don't believe so. I don't believe that that is the teaching of the New Testament at all. But what it's saying is, is that for us, it is it's as fallen asleep. The body certainly falls asleep. The body lies in the grave until Christ returns, but our spirits go to be with the Lord. Well, what we have just read involves a lot of judgment. Have you noticed that? The leaders of, of God's people and those who joined in that find Stephen guilty. And uh, we know that at least uh, one of them will later repent of it. They're not exactly... Uh, we don't know of any huge outpouring or turning of that, but we know at least one did. Stephen was, was judged in a horrible misjudgment and yet was vindicated because Christ stood with him. Christ honored him. Christ received him. Let's look really quickly then at three applications that we can take away from this. Three applications, they're, they're really understandings that we ought to arrive at. And most of, I don't think these are going to come as like new and shocking revelations to you, but here they are. First of all, Hardened, rebellious sinners are under an indictment. Hardened, rebellious sinners are under an indictment. We have to be very careful here that we not look upon the stoning of Stephen because it happened at the hands of the Jewish people. That we do not, therefore, and thereby become anti-Semites. Because the truth of the matter is, it really doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. They just got there first, in this case. When you think about the early Jewish believers, they were, and Paul describes them himself and others this way, that they were the first fruits in redemption. And we might look at these that are stoning Stephen to death and say, well, that's kind of the first fruits of some of those, the first fruits of damnation, if you will. But trust me, the Gentiles, the Gentiles were under the same verdict. That's the whole point of the early chapters of the book of Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we get to that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if you're tracking with Paul's argument, he's talking about Jews and Greeks alike, isn't he? All, everyone, of every, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile. Look at, look at Romans 2.12. For all have sinned, for all who sinned, who have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. That would be the Jewish people and all who have sinned under, under the law will be judged by the law. I sorry, I got that completely backward, but you, you, you caught the meaning, right? Dear unbeliever, are you not, you, this is just a judgment, 
understand. But if it were me, I'd want to get the judgment right. Are you not stiff-necked? Are you not uncircumcised of ear and heart? Have you not resisted the Holy Spirit at, at every turn where the gospel's been proclaimed to you? Are your, are your hands truly innocent of innocent blood? There is a judgment of God upon those who perish without the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who want to stand before God on their own merit, there is a, a judgment which is coming. You need to be making sure. If it were me, I'd want to know on something that important that my judgment was correct. And it's easy to be wrong. It's easy to be wrong. Second application of this, second understanding, Jesus stands with his people as the judge of rebellious sinners. Ten chapters later, Paul is going to be talking and by the way, think of the transition here. Right? Saul there approving, coats being left at his feet. A much older Saul will be in Athens. Athens, what do you think of when you think of Athens? Greece, right? It's in Greece and philosophers, a place called the Areopagus at Mars Hill. And Paul is there and he's debating these, these Greek philosophers, Gentiles now, not a Jew among them. And look at, look at what Paul speaks about there. Because he, God, now this is Paul talking about God the Father in this case. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, talking about Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is he saying? He's saying Christ is the judge. He's the judge of all men, Jew and Gentile alike. We will all give an account, the Bible says, before the judgment seat of Christ. And what we know about that judgment seat and that verdict is that Christ will acquit those who have received the gospel and trusted him. And he will bring judgment on those who have not. It's that simple. Split right down the middle. He'll receive his people. He'll bring judgment to those who have rejected the gospel. That's throughout the New Testament. Look at this, this passage, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians. He writes, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you, he's speaking to Christians, may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When you follow Christ, you may suffer injustice in this world. You may, like Stephen, bear that kind of, of horrible miscarriage of justice against you. I don't know, did you guys follow the news this week about what happened in Oregon? There's a group of Christians, it was an outdoor celebration of some kind, an outdoor service. I know nothing about the particular Christians, I can't vouch for how, how sound their doctrine is or anything like that. I just know that it was an outdoor gathering of a church, and somehow Antifa, are you familiar with them? The black clad troublemakers, they just go around you know, creating violence and mayhem wherever they go. And they heard about it, and they showed up at this outdoor event, and they sprayed the people with bear spray. These Christians, including children. And because it was Portland, the police just stood back and watched it all happen. Now, does that make your blood boil just a little? 
Because as an American, we're sitting there going, oh, that should not happen. This is the, the, oh, this freedom, of, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. We, we, but you know what? The, the, is, is this so strange? We, we suffer, and we will suffer in this world. When we suffer, we may or may not have a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of us won't have that literal vision. But with the eyes of our hearts, we know that that's the truth. We know that he stands as judge, that he will give relief to those who have trusted in him. He will bring affliction to those who afflict us. He is ultimately the judge, and he stands in that judgment, and he stands ready to receive his people. Thirdly, God's people must call upon the Lord in the hour of our trial. There are two requests, which are not hard to find. I'm sure you saw them. Two requests that, uh, that Stephen cried out. The first one was, receive my spirit. How many have ever prayed that prayer to Jesus? No one? Are you afraid he would take you up on it? I have been, and I know people close to me that have, that have prayed that prayer. Maybe in a weak moment, because we're just like, you know what? Stuff it. I'm done. <laughs> take me home, Mr. Wizard. Take me home, Jesus. I'm ready. Just, just. Just take my spirit, receive it. And then you, you pray that way and you think, oh man, I better watch it. He might, actually, he might actually do it. But I wonder if Peter had the words of Stephen ringing in his mind and memory when he wrote these words years later. He wrote, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful, faithful creator while doing good. Christian, are, are, you, are you suffering for the Lord? in the situation you're in, do you feel like all the hosts of hell are just gathered around you? What should you do? Well, whatever else you ought to do, you ought to be crying out to the Lord and trusting Him, entrusting your soul to Him. And it might not be that this will be at the moment of death, so perhaps you're not going to literally pray to Him, Lord, take my spirit. But, but you know what? Whether we die or live, if we die, we die to the Lord. If we live, we live to the Lord. One way or another, we belong to the Lord. So we ought to entrust our souls to a faithful creator when we're facing hardship. And then, and then finally, Stephen calls upon the Lord to forgive his enemies. And, and we ought to do the same thing. Jesus did so on the cross. Stephen did it here. Um, we're not as good at that, I think. We think we are in the theoretical, like we're all against judgment and things, and we find some things in the scripture so, so judgy. But then you hear about something like in Portland, and you're like, smite them, Lord. Come on, take them, take them out of there, those Antifa. You know, maybe I'm just the only one that, that feels those kind of feelings. I don't think we can forgive people like that. I'm just, I, I don't think we can. I don't think in our flesh, in our humanity, that we can forgive them. The reason that, that Stephen could do that was because of his trust in Christ, his faith in Christ, and, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Christ calls us to speak the truth, to proclaim the truth, but to do it in a non-judgmental way. And see, that's where Stephen was not judgmental. That's the little twist in this. Because he spoke the truth to them. 
but in his death, he literally prayed for those who were killing him. And that's where the, judge, the difference between speaking the truth and judgment really lies, I think. It's the heart to forgive. Don't misjudge God's judgment, dear one. If you're a believer, let your faith catch up with where it needs to be. By all means, speak the truth. Don't we need more Stevens in our midst? You're not sure? Don't you? From the mouth of babes. From the mouth of babes we got to... Yeah, we need more people that are out there calling balls and strikes that are, that are going to speak prophetically to our culture. You say, well, you know, don't, don't come on too strong. Hey, whatever it takes. Hold, hold that mirror up. Let people know. Why? Because they're perishing. They're all going to die. Every last one of those people are going to die and face the judgment. And so we have to be Stevens. We have to tell the truth. We have to speak that at the same time. May we be people who have a heart for them to forgive them even, even when they do us wrong. If you're not a believer today, I'd like to say to you, don't suppose in your heart that because things are going particularly well right now, that that means that God's favor is on your life and you're going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. You know how people always talk about bad things happening to good people? Do you know what's really weird? Good things happen to bad people. And the Bible is truthful about that. Jesus said, God causes the rain and the sun to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Do not misinterpret you know, your, your youth and your health or whatever else you think you've got going for you as, as signs of God's favor. You need to repent. Do you know what repentance really is? Put in a different way. Normally I talk about repentance because it's a very biblical metaphor of, of being a turning, where you're turning away from the way you're going from your own rebellion and sin and, and stiff-necked, uncircumcised heart. And, and you're turning toward and believing in Christ. That's certainly what repentance is. But bringing it into the realm of judgment for a minute, the first stage of repentance is to agree with God's judgment. Do you realize that? The first stage of repentance is, is when we are judged by the word of God. That uncircumcised heart, the Holy Spirit does a work. I don't know how he does it. But he breaks through to that heart and suddenly we look and we go, God is just and God is right. God is right to condemn me. I have, I've, I've lived a stiff-necked, resistant, stubborn life going my own way. And when, and when you judge yourself in that way and look to Jesus Christ in that moment, you will be saved. He took the judgment for his people. He he took that to the cross. He took the injustice. He bore that so that instead of standing indicted in front of the court of heaven, we might stand acquitted. And we just urge you today, agree with God's judgment. Judge it rightly. Agree with God. Look to Christ. Be saved. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we are so so much like ships that rock back and forth and are tossed to and fro. In, in our judgments, Lord, we can be too severe and we can be too lenient. We can see things wrongly. Help us, Lord, to see them as you see them. Lord, may we have a little bit more of Stephen in us and, and, and a greater filling of the Holy Spirit. Help us to speak the truth 
And it says to speak the truth in love, Lord. And I don't even believe that that always looks loving to the people that are receiving it. But Lord, may we have such a heart that we care so much, care so desperately for the sake of your kingdom and the gospel and the souls of those that we speak to that we might, in fact, show them the judgment of God upon them and then quickly point them to the cross. And may we, may we have forgiving spirits toward those that, that do us harm. Help us in that, Lord. And I, I pray, Lord, that someone today would, would have that uncircumcised heart be just split wide open. And, and Lord, that you would reveal yourself by your spirit through the gospel of Christ and that they might look to him now and find salvation. For we ask it in his name. Amen.